Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the latest edition of the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policies Contours podcast series. I'm your guest host, Nicholas Harris, and I'm joined today by our Senior Director for Analytical Development and Training, Eugene Chelsovsky. Eugene also happens to be a world-renowned expert on Ukraine, Russia, and post-Soviet states, and he's a highly respected geopolitical analyst. Eugene, thank you for joining us today. I want to start uh, with a sort of broad question. Can you give us the state of play right now, not only in the Ukraine war, as we head on to the unfortunate two-year anniversary of the war, but also the 10-year anniversary of Russia's initial campaign in Ukraine in 2014? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Nick. So I would say that the the state of play of the war right now, we've seen now almost two years in of Russia's full-scale invasion. The war has kind of ground to a, a stalemate of sorts on the strategic level. Now we have seen that now we have seen that Ukraine's counteroffensive, which it launched last year, was not as successful as many in Kiev and the West had hoped. Uh, we have seen more recently that Russia has made some limited tactical gains taking the city of Avdiivka in eastern Ukraine. But mostly we don't see a lot of change along the front lines. This has become a, a, a very drawn out conflict, uh, especially over the past few months. And there is no real uh, major signals for uh, an end in sight anytime soon. Now, you did point to the broader backdrop as well, which is that this war actually didn't really start two years ago. Of course, Russia did escalate it significantly, but it really goes back more than 10 years ago with the Euromaidan revolution in Kiev and Russia's subsequent annexation of Crimea and the support of separatist conflicts in eastern Ukraine. So essentially, this has been a, a much longer war than uh, many give it credit for. And it really showcases, I think, a lot of the geopolitical dynamics, and a lot of global ripple effects that I'm sure we'll get into more in this podcast. Thank you, Eugene. And I just want to pick up on that last point you gave us, because I think it's really important when we take a step back and we say, look, the campaign that Russia initiated in February 2022 was in fact a resumption of the campaign that it had launched in 2014. And in fact, as you've pointed out uh, in your work here at the New Lines Institute and other places, there was always sort of fighting that happened along the point of contact. And we had what was thought to be a frozen but unfreezing type of conflict, which now, of course, is metastasized even uh, larger. And I want to also point out, you know, I, I follow very closely political the discussion here in the United States. And one of the dynamics that I think also um, is coming to fore is when we hear in the press and in the discourse this concept of a lawn war, aka a conflict that extends so long that it ultimately uh, costs the United States from that point of view too much and therefore um, risks the United States taking its eye off other uh, situations such as in East Asia with China or increasingly in our political discourse here in the United States on the southern border uh, with Mexico, that you see that begin to creep into the discussion. And I've noticed uh, with the recent interview that Tucker Carlson did, the, the conservative commentator here in the United States, did with Russian President Vladimir Putin, you saw this just Russian worldview in full war, where President Putin essentially gave Tucker Carlson a seance of the history 
of Russia and Ukraine. Um, and interestingly enough, I see coming out of the most recent Munich Security Conference held in Europe, the US and its uh, NATO allies and European Union allies seem to also try to get this sense of, hey, look, this is an existential conflict for a rules-based international order that may not be perfect, but it's better than we've ever had in human society. So that having been said, I want to come back to you on this point of the broader geopolitical context as you see it. How do you see this next year unfolding? Yeah, thanks, Nick. So I think you made a very important point in terms of discussing the effects of, of what has become a long war. And, and you know, as we've already mentioned, that war has been raging for the past two years, but also nearly a decade before that. And I think that what the consequences of that are, are multiple. So one, it does show that Russia, on the one hand, its military was not able to achieve its uh, main objectives in terms of the quote-unquote demilitarization or denazification of Ukraine that Putin had talked about right up until the launch of February 2022. Russian forces were not able to swiftly invade, sack Kiev, and turn Ukraine into a pro-Russian state. So that definitely exposed Russia's lack of major military strength. And on the other hand, it showed that Ukraine was actually a, a pretty credible fighting force and showed the Western support for it. Now, fast forward two years later, the roles have somewhat reversed in a sense, in the sense that Russia has, despite those initial setbacks and you know the, the exposure of its military, has been able to maintain that fight, has, as we've talked about, regained some territory, you know, most recently in Avdiivka. And it is now Ukraine that's struggling to basically hold the line, so to speak, not just from a military standpoint, but from a Western support standpoint, because we saw very, I think, unprecedented support from the U.S. and other NATO countries for Ukraine for much of the initial phases of the military conflict. But now we're starting to see that support, see some stresses. Uh, obviously, in the U.S., this latest aid package for Ukraine has been held up in Congress for, for a number of different reasons, uh, some of which you've already mentioned. So that is uh, contributing to some of the stresses that, you, that Ukraine faces, both from an ammunition standpoint, uh, but also from just a, a broader political backing. And, and really, the question now is, can the U.S. especially, and, and NATO in particular, with other issues rising to the fore because the Ukraine conflict has lasted for in its current phase for two years. Now you have the Israel-Gaza conflict. You have, as you mentioned, the, the issue with the, the Mexico border and of course the US presidential election coming up. So can US compete with all of these other issues that are vying for US intention? And that's really the big question, which I think goes to your, your final question about what is the outlook? I think this is really the key question to look forward because you know, whether or not Ukraine is able to basically hold the line, perhaps, you know, utilize some of its growing advantages in terms of some of the military support that it did receive, fighter jets, its drone capabilities that it's been building, things of that nature. This points to having some ability to regain the momentum. But we've also seen all of the challenges to that, you know, from Russia's own military position to the U.S. backing. So these, I think, are the key questions and of course, going into uh, this election at the end of this year, that will really shape the conflict, not only this year, but but beyond that as well. Thank you, Eugene. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because from the point of view of someone like myself, who has a, a deep background in Middle East analysis, I mean, we see now full bore 
the extent to which, for example, Iran has deepened its alliance, I think we can call it that now, uh, with Russia in terms of uh, supporting the Russian effort to utilize Iranian manufacturing kamikaze drones or loitering munitions that have been uh, extremely destructive, especially against Ukrainian civilian, but also military targets, uh, but also uh, the extent to which, as you pointed out, uh, with the Gaza conflict metastasizing in the Middle East, um, we've already seen a lot of concern regarding the extent to which the United States can support Israel, as an example, and Ukraine and potentially Taiwan, sort of this link in of the theaters, if you will, globally um, from U.S. security analysts. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure now on the European Union, on NATO countries in Europe to make up the slack, so to speak. And you, you see that, as you pointed out, the domestic political discussion around the 2%. Are NATO countries spending 2% of their GDP on the military spending? Um, and you even see Biden administration officials trying to encourage uh, Europe now. Now they've come around to the idea of Europeanization, if you will, of European security. So I want to take us back to one of the scenarios that you've developed, which I think is a really brilliant scenario, uh, although sad, of course, is this idea of a hybrid escalation. Can you walk us through what hybrid escalation means and why it's super important for all foreign and national security policy uh, professionals, but also just the general public to understand uh, what that context could result in? Yeah, absolutely. So when I discuss hybrid escalation, it, there's really multiple components to it because we've already talked about you know, the military standpoint that, you know, despite Russia's recent tactical advances, the war on the front lines is more or less at a stalemate. So if you're thinking about things like a military escalation, that would entail the conflict uh, intensifying significantly within Ukraine. It could entail uh, spreading beyond Ukraine to perhaps direct Russia-NATO confrontations. Those things, I think, at this point are unlikely, though you can't rule out that possibility entirely. Hybrid escalation, on the other hand, is kind of that gray zone warfare that doesn't necessarily include only a military standpoint, but it can incorporate parts of it. So just as an example of that, we've seen Ukraine, because of its struggles on the battlefield, on the front lines, has really been focusing on and increasing its drone capabilities, both on the domestic front and also in partnership with some of its partners and, and allies. So, for example, we've seen now Ukraine increasingly target Russia, both in, in you know, places like Crimea, where you know uh, Ukraine has really been looking at utilizing its drone capabilities against warships there, but also in Russia proper. And, and something that's really emerged over the past few weeks has been Ukraine targeting Russian energy infrastructure well beyond the border areas between Russia and Ukraine. This includes in places like St. Petersburg on the Baltic Sea, where there's a lot of uh, Russian energy infrastructure and kind of all along the, the Western zone of, of Russia, so to speak. And this is, I think, in some ways, an echo of what Russia has been doing in Ukraine, you know, not only targeting Ukrainian military sites, but also critical infrastructure. We saw that, especially in the first year where Russia was basically trying to knock out Ukraine's energy infrastructure, transport infrastructure, things of that nature. So basically, Ukraine is now taking the fight to Russia, so to speak. But it also entails other non-security forms of contention. So we've seen, for example, economic statecraft has been a, a really important part of this war. You know, the U.S. and EU have passed major sanctions against Russia, which you know haven't you know completely wrecked the Russian economy, 
but they have certainly added economic pressures against Russia. And increasingly, we're starting to see how secondary sanctions are really adding further pressure against Russia by you know, countries like China, countries like India and Turkey, which have maintained economic ties uh, with Russia despite the war in Ukraine, are starting to be felt more and more and starting to basically uh, lessen their business or at least be a lot more focused and, and cautious on how they conduct business with Russia because of this of these sanctions. So everything that goes beyond that line of direct military to military conflict is uh, captured in hybrid escalation. And yes, this is something that we've seen. This scenario has really, really increased, especially in the first couple of months of this year. Eugene, I want to build on this point because with hybrid, this hybrid escalation scenario, I think you also give a lot of space, rightfully, to the, the, the human element of geopolitical analysis. And one of the dynamics that I have been following closely over the last two years is this, the dynamic within Russian society and Russian uh, sociopolitics. And it seems that despite the broad analysis and assessment by many in the sort of public security community, that Russia's will to fight would erode. In fact, it seems the opposite has happened. And that although there's the famous examples of Russia uh, offering uh, lots of uh, enticements for uh, prisoners in Russian jails to fight in Ukraine, uh, voluntary recruitment has increased uh, dramatically over the last year in Russia for uh, military service. You have just social media is replete with examples of young Russians sort of embracing this concept of the Z generation. And here in, in the United States, and uh, as I've, I've observed in sort of the European discourse, there's a lot of an emphasis on Ukraine's will to fight, which, which is there. And the Ukrainian society has, has really rallied effectively, despite all the pressures against it. However, on the Russian side, there also seems to be a rallying around the flag effect. And with Russia's sheer size advantage over Ukraine, the developing dynamic that it seems that China, Russia, Iran, and other partners such as North Korea, the Houthis, for example, in Yemen, uh, potentially Venezuela in Latin America, and some other states are kind of developing this sort of nascent sense of if not an outright alliance, a cooperative type of venture that seeks to reduce the influence of the United States region by region, and on aggregate, therefore, kind of force the U.S. out of um, its leading position in global affairs. So from that point of view, a lot of questions will sort of lie on the extent to which both Ukrainian society and Russian society are girded for a long existential type conflict. Uh, you have extensive experience in Ukraine uh, and also in the post-Soviet states. What is your read on the zeitgeist, both on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side, for being involved in a, a hybrid escalation scenario? Yeah, it's a it's a really important question. I think you know, starting with Ukraine, I was just speaking to you know a Ukrainian contact of mine that's that's based in Kiev, uh, you know, shortly before this call, and there's certainly the zeitgeist. I think is that there that will to fight, that will to stand up to to Russia is still very much there, and I think that the majority of Ukraine still feels that, and and I think that will that will continue for for quite some time. Now, I will say, and this is kind of the impression that I got from this conversation, is that the lack of support or at least the uh, the degree of support from the West and especially from the U.S. 
that is taking its toll, I think, not only from the kind of the direct logistical military support, but also from a diplomatic standpoint and from a morale standpoint in a way. Not to say that Ukrainians will stop fighting, but that it's a it's a more difficult fight ahead when they're not sure that their key allies are there to support them in a sustainable way. So this is, I think, something that really bears watching very closely. I will note that the EU has just recently passed its own, you know, large scale, I think, 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine, uh, which I think is an important point. But the U.S. obviously looms very large here. So that will be a, a very key factor in terms of that zeitgeist that you mentioned. On the Russian side, there's a, a number of different factors there. I would say that the support that uh, Russia has has received, and by support, I mean whether that's just continuing trade ties or just not joining the Western isolation effort from countries outside of the West, you know, countries around the global South, you, you mentioned a, a number of, of, of them. That has actually, I think, you know, helped Russian morale in terms of continuing this fight. The fact that Russia has been able to basically wage this war and not be completely isolated, I think, is a very important component of that. Obviously, there's a, a number of dom different domestic measures as well. And, you know, Russia is run in a very centralized and authoritarian way. So it's hard to gauge the, the will and the popularity of the war in a, in a very kind of real sense. But you can tell that it hasn't been so stressed that Russia has been able to continue this war and even gain some advantages. The, the final point that I'll mention here, and you kind of touched on it, is how important, you know, multipolarity has become. And really this war, I think going back to the last couple of years, has really demonstrated how much we've moved into a, a more multipolar world where you have countries, for example, Iran, you mentioned Iran's support for Russia, not only directly in terms of providing drones and other weapon systems, but also the fact that Iran has now actively, uh, you know, involved in this proxy war with the U.S. in so many different theaters, uh, obviously stemming from the Israel-Gaza conflict, but seeing how that has uh, really accentuated in places, you know, from from Yemen and, and the Houthi attacks on Red Sea shipping to to Iraq and Syria, Lebanon, all of these other places that the U.S. feels kind of tied down in, in a lot of areas that it was hoping to basically if not disengaged, but certainly lessen its involvement in. In the meantime, you have a rising China, which has maintained its, its uh, ties and even increased them with Russia. So all of this, I think, has been playing to some extent into Russia's favor, and to some extent it has been adding the pressure on the U.S. Now, I'll kind of, uh, I'll say that overall, the U.S. is still by far the most powerful country, especially, you know, compared to, to Russia, but being stretched thin and, you know, countries like Russia and China and Iran working together, if only just to kind of undermine that U.S. and Western-led order, I think has been one of the most striking features of this conflict or, or really contextualizing this conflict over the last couple of years. Thank you, Eugene. So I want to I wanna build off that last point because, you know, it is an election year here in the United States and on both sides of the political aisle and who knows, and potential third party that may run or a fourth party that may run as well, uh, depending on how this election cycle goes, you know, U.S. voters are going to ask these candidates, OK, what does victory look like in Ukraine? And I know it's almost become a cliche in some ways, similar to uh, the question about the day after in Gaza, for example, in the context of the of the war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. But it is an important question. And in the sort of hybrid escalation scenario, 
if you were advising, you know, our current administration uh, or, you know, any one of its potential opponents in the election on, you know, what is a nuanced but truthful answer to give to an American voter who might say, okay, so what does victory look like in Ukraine? What would it be? That's a difficult question, but I, I would say that what does victory look like in Ukraine is continued support for Ukraine. Of course, that support has to come with conditions and that support can't be you know, endless. But we have seen very you know, concretely what the lack of support can translate to. And I'm talking here about you know, those, those recent gains that Russia has made. That is in part uh, you know, a direct reflection of Ukrainian shortages of, of weaponry and ammunitions that comes from the lack of that continued financial and military support from the US. So if Russia were to continue to make gains on the battlefield with that, who knows how far that they could potentially go in Ukraine. And a lot of NATO countries bring up the fact that you know, it may not stop ultimately. However, it perceives Western weakness or lack of support, it will try to manipulate that as much as it can. Now, this you know, also should factor in that the US does not have unlimited bandwidth. And as we've already talked about, you know, there are very pressing issues from the Middle East to China and a potential Taiwan scenario that the U.S. has to, to keep in mind. So uh, I, I would not necessarily advise a major you know, military increase uh, of its own troops, certainly into Ukraine, but even kind of into some of the NATO countries. I, I would advise more of a smart strategy where you balance the economic pressures that the U.S. has placed on Russia in terms of sanctions. I know that there's been some consideration of uh, seizing Russian assets and using those to fund Ukraine's own reconstruction. There's definitely complications there, but it, it's a unique model to consider in terms of creative ways to continue that support for Ukraine and you know, to, to assist Ukraine with its hybrid capabilities. And I think you know, the drone manufacturing has been a, a good example of that, boosting Ukraine's own domestic capabilities so that it doesn't uh, always rely directly on that Western support. All of these, I think, are, are things that should be considered. There's no one kind of clear silver bullet answer, but I think that you know, when you're comparing the, the potential for, for military escalation and for, for hybrid escalation in order to get to that goal, which is some kind of diplomatic resolution or, or understanding, I think all of these things need to be weighed together in a whole of government approach, especially with you know, the election coming up and needing to show the American people but also the Ukrainian people that this support does lead to significant benefits and tangible results. Thank you, Eugene. Well, I have the last question saved for you, which is we talked about the politics, the geopolitics and the policy options. But from your point of view, as someone who's followed Ukraine, Russia, the post-Soviet environment, and is a highly regarded geopolitical analyst, what is one dynamic analytically that you are looking at very closely over the course of 2024? Yes, that's a great question, Nick. I would say something that we've already touched upon will be really important, which is the, the role played by other players in this conflict. Obviously, you know, the West, the US and the EU and NATO countries will be critical for, for Ukraine to continue to defend itself and, and try to essentially defeat Russia. Russia will have its support from countries like Iran and North Korea, as you've already mentioned. But I think that the position of other countries, for example, Turkey, how it assists Ukraine with its 
drone capabilities as one example. India will be a very important country as a non-aligned state that has basically kept up its economic ties and in some cases even significantly increased it with Russia. How these kind of you know secondary regional players will influence the conflict will be very, very important, I think, in terms of shaping it out. I would also look just kind of as a as a warning in a way about the potential for the conflict to go beyond the immediate front lines. We've already talked about how Ukraine has targeted deep inside of Russia proper, but even how interlinked this conflict has become with the conflicts in the Middle East. We've seen some reports emerge about Ukraine essentially supporting forces in Sudan that are aligned with the military government there that's against the Russian-backed, the Wagner-backed RSF paramilitary forces. I just bring that up as one example that given the interlinkages, the connectivity of these different conflicts, that don't be surprised if we start to see Russia and Ukraine go at it in different areas well beyond the front lines. And then, of course, how that brings in all of those other local, regional, and global players could be the thing that we look back on in 2024 as being the real difference in in this conflict compared to previous years. Thank you, Eugene, very much for a deep dive and a comprehensive analysis on the current situation in the war between Russia and Ukraine, the broader dynamics that affect the global human society, some policy recommendations that I hope our policymakers look at closely, but also a forecast on where things may go both in terms of the conflict in Europe, but also more widely afield. Uh, Thank you everyone for joining us for this edition of the Contours podcast series. We will continue at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy to observe closely the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, the global effects of that conflict, and provide disruptive ideas for bold policy action to end the war and hopefully alleviate the human suffering that results from it. Thank you and all the best.